This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan. Apart from small pockets around the world, there's no denying that the left or socialist movements are losing big time. The world is becoming increasingly polarised and right-wing, ultra-conservative populists are on the rise. But why is this happening? Despite the rising cost of living, stagnating wages, the shrinking middle class, unaffordable housing and existential threats such as climate change, events and phenomena that should be bringing people together. On today's show, I will be having a chat with Sarah Hathaway of the Socialist Alliance in Australia. Sarah is also an elected local councillor in the city of Greater Zhulong, as well as Sivarajan Arugam, Sekjen of Party Socialist Malaysia. And we're having this conversation in line with an upcoming international conference organised by Party Socialist Malaysia that's taking place on the 2nd and 3rd of December at the Kuala Lumpur Selangor Chinese Assembly Hall. The conference is called Rise, Resist, Revolt, Socialism 2023 and will feature socialist activists, academics and economists from Malaysia and across the world. Sarah, Siva, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here again, Dash. So, Sarah, let me start with you. I, I want to just get to know you a little bit better. Tell me about yourself, the political party you represent and the work that you do. Yes, yeah, so I'm one of three national co-conveners of Socialist Alliance in Australia. And I think probably fair to say we're sort of one of two larger socialist organisations in Australia. For myself personally, um, end of June this year, I found myself elected to local council. So my head has very much been in the local realm. But quite recently, due to events in Gaza, I've been part of establishing a Free Palestine Geelong group in my city with members from the local mosque and local activists. So that's that's probably been my focus for the last four or five weeks. So you mentioned that you're from Socialist Alliance. Um, when we look at the, the sort of bigger, uh, um, slightly more mainstream parties in, in Australia, I think most people are familiar with Labour, which is centre-left. And then in recent years, the Green Party, uh, Australian Greens, have really picked up steam. Um, they started to win, um, uh, do better in elections. Um, and, and Australian Greens are also seen as more left than Labour. Um, how do you guys fit into the equation? What would you say is the difference um, between the Socialist Alliance and the, the Green, Australian Greens? Historically, you'd probably describe Australia as a two-party system. Mm-hmm. And certainly within the last decade, maybe even less five years, I think it's it's definitely fair to say now we have, a, we have three major parties. Um, the Greens are increasingly doing well. They're winning more seats. Um, largely in inner city areas. But if you sort of looked at Socialist Alliance and Greens policy on paper, to a large extent, you'd be like, well, what's the difference? Because a lot of our policy does look quite similar. At the core of it, though, is that even though the Greens are gaining momentum, they're increasing their vote, they're winning more seats, their view of themselves is we are an elected an electoralist project. We're here to win seats and then outside of election, we're looking, we've got a 3D plan to the next election. Um, There's been two specific issues 
um, like bits of legislation. One was a climate um, legislation and another around housing where the Greens were pretty horrifically wedged quite publicly to accept less than favourable policy. And this saying kept going around, you know, don't let the enemy be the perfect of the good, you know, like it's good enough, just accept it. And what fell over there is there was no call from the Greens party to the movement or the campaigns to say, we need you guys to mobilise. We can't win this without heat heat and feet on the streets. Um, So none of that was there. And they were in a situation of trying to negotiate with the ALP behind closed doors and, um, you know, look, no one has a crystal ball, but I think it's fair to say that if they'd made that call to say, we need you to come out and mobilise around this, maybe we would have got a better outcome. And unfortunately, there was some public tit for tat between the Greens and some like climate NGOs and movement groups with Mm. the Greens coming out and basically pointing the finger and saying, you stuffed up because you didn't come and campaign and you didn't support us. So yeah, that's kind of the key difference that we're, we're seeing. Right. Now, Siva, you've been on this show many times, but for the purpose of this discussion, tell me about yourself and the political party you're part of and, and the work that you all do. Party Socialist Malaysia is, of course, uh, it's quite interesting this year because we are celebrating our 25th year mm-hmm. uh, since our beginning in uh, 1998. And of course, PSM um, is a party of activists. We started off as a people's movement, as a group of activists who felt that there was a vacuum in the current political landscape. And that's why we started off uh, the Party Socialist Malaysia. And basically, how we operate is in a way that we have the political party and we have the movement. So the movement is what we continuously try to build. And I think when we've been working with um, the Socialist Alliance, uh, Sarah and the other comrades for a very, very long time. And I think there's a lot of things that we also learn from them and um, this, so this is a continuous thing that we like to engage with not only with the uh, Socialist Alliance in Australia. Uh, since 2005, um, internationally, we sort of like had networks in Southeast Asia, left-leaning parties. And now that basically that network is expanding. Um, even recently, about two weeks ago, uh, PSM's chairperson was in South Africa. So he was uh, attending another huge left grouping of political parties known as the International People's Assembly. Right. So it is it's great that we're learning a lot of parties. We're making connections internationally with a lot of parties. And so basically the idea is that because we understand that the struggle against capitalism is a global struggle. And that's why that all parties, left-leaning parties must come together. And I think we'll talk about this more. So far-right parties are on the rise in many parts of the world. If you look at America, we have the likes of Donald Trump. And it's not like the likes of um, Biden and and so on and so forth are particularly left either. They're not. They're neoliberals. Um, And then in other countries, in Europe, you have the likes of Georgia Maloney, who's become the the Prime Minister of Italy. Uh, Even if you look at Asia, you look at um, India, you have Narendra Modi, who is a you know, huge um, ethno-religious nationalists. Do you see similar patterns, Sarah, in this side of the world, um, be it Australia, this region? Yeah, it's been interesting in Australia. I mean, through party-to-party conversations, as Siva was saying, or just watching what's happening, there's been these figures like Trump and Modi and, and far-right movements that have had a an electoral expression have been elected into government or have a a mass party around it. Um, 
certainly in, in more recent times in Australia, we haven't had anything like that um, in terms of a far right that's had an electoral expression. Um, if you went back to the 90s, we had Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party um, and that all took a bit of a dive and unfortunately she's still kicking and still around but um, very much on the nose, there's no mass upsurge. Um, for us, it's more issues-based. Issues um, so probably the two big things um, since COVID, we had a huge outpouring of um, anti-vax, anti-lockdown, far-right mobilisations, like on a scale that we have never seen. Um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Melbourne, but we've got this big Westgate bridge in Melbourne right. and um, there was footage that came out whilst we were under COVID lockdown of this um, anti-vax, anti-lockdown rally that filled the Westgate bridge and marched over it. And we haven't seen anything like that for anything progressive. Um, obviously, we're past COVID now um, and or out of lockdown anyway. Um, the far right has now sort of expressing itself through sort of anti-trans, um, anti-gay rights type things. So it's now at a much more local level where they're picketing events at local libraries or storming local councils Um but, yeah, nothing sort of large-scale or, or nationally cohered or organised at this point. Siva, I think um, Sarah brings up an interesting point, which seems like um, when we look at Australia and then look at Malaysia, it's an interesting juncture, right? Because on the one hand, um, Australia, um, it seems like their previous elections, the masses took steps towards the left. Um, the Labour Party defeated the right-wing coalition. Um, on top of that, I think more interestingly, um, Greens started to pick up more seats than they have ever before. In Malaysia, we are seeing a, a type of opposite where younger people are voting for the um, ethno-religious parties in bigger numbers. How do you see this um, difference? How do you make sense of it? I think what is quite different in Malaysia is that uh, basically, uh, besides the rise of the right wing under Perikatan National that we see now and the uh, empowering of past, but previous to this also, we are under the racial party governance for over 60 years under Barisan National. Right. So the effect of racism, the effect of racial politics has been always there. Uh, so unlike in Australia, whereby you have two two different angles, you have the progressive uh, Labour Party, the Greens, and the Conservatives on the other side. But uh, we had a whole tradition since uh, our independence, whereby AMNO has been always playing up this role. Uh, they have the, been the ones who have been doing uh, racial politics. So it's nothing new. But what has happened today is that uh, the problem has gotten more serious, whereby I think I believe that capitalism itself sort of like uh, creates the objective situation for this to happen. When the economic pie gets much, much smaller, there's a greater disparity between the rich and the poor. So people are always looking for someone else to blame. And so a continuation of that is what Perikatan National and PAS were able to play on. And that's why that we feel the younger people are more sort of like pulled into this racial politics whereby they feel that, yes, we need to enhance the, the Malay chauvinism, we need to sort of go against the migrants, the xenophobia. 
So I think that is what is really uh, happening in Malaysia. And of course, the, the situation in terms of the economics, like I said earlier, whereby uh, the younger people are getting, uh, they're having difficulty in uh, getting services, getting jobs, and they always look at the other races, they look at the migrants as their enemies. And this is what has been continuously being played up. Let's also look at a macro global um, level, right? Because we are seeing, um, other than certain areas like, let's say, um, Latin America, where the left um, in certain countries are making some ground, uh, maybe like we said in Australia, electorally making some ground. But broadly speaking, it feels like far-right parties are on the rise. What, Sarah, would you uh, say accounts for the rise in popularity of right-wing parties um, on a global level? So I guess some things I've seen locally and I guess maybe trying to extrapolate that out in terms of what's maybe driving younger people or young voters mm-hmm. um, is I guess we've got this sense of impending doom on right. all of us with the climate crisis and, um, you know, of course some countries are responding to it better than others but it just seems globally we're heading off a cliff um, in terms of the climate and not really addressing it. Um, but then, I mean, all those things that Steve is talking about of difficulty getting jobs, difficulty existing, um, getting a house, seeing a future for yourself as a young person, um, just on that material level, let alone the existential crisis of <laughs> climate and everything else. Right. Um I don't know. I mean, I can see how it's swung both ways. Like we've had upsurges with school school strike for climate or Greta Thunberg or upsurges around that. But then the other way is it's like um, like all politicians are corrupt. It's all cooked. Um, I'm just going to disengage from all of it because it's broken and I, and I can't or I'm going to swing right because the traditional left has has let me down Um yeah, I guess I'm just I'm, I'm I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, but I guess that's my thought on maybe what's behind some of that. I want to talk about the traditional left in a bit, but let's stick on this point um, of the rise in right wing parties um, and also the rise in polarization, um, Siva, because it feels like all over the world. I mean, Sarah brings up an excellent point. There's this existential threat of climate. A crisis, it's no, not just climate change, it's a climate crisis. Um, every time the IPCC re- releases their reports, every time we, 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 we look at what's been said in COP, um, it's, it is a huge existential threat that is undeniable. Um, and then across the world, we are seeing housing is becoming more unaffordable, wages are stagnating, so on and so forth. It seems like you know, there are these big problems that people can sort of unite and say, let's come together and solve these problems. But what's ended up happening is that people are becoming more polarised. Depending on which country you're in, the narrative can take different forms. It can be racial on religious polarisation. It can be polarised across gender lines. It can be coming after sexual minorities. It can be uh, huge anti-immigrant sentiments, as we see in, in many parts of Europe. And this anti-immigrant sentiment is even on the rise in countries like Sweden and, and so on and so forth. Why is it in a time where there's so much of existential crisis that should unite people 
Why are we more polarized than we are than we have ever been on a global level? Naturally, well, when solutions are not there, are not provided by the progressives, so naturally people are sort of more uh, pulled to the uh, this kind of issues whereby the differences are shown. The people are more divisive to look for an enemy and 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 so on. So I think the element of racism, uh, the roots of it, has been always there. And it has been always uh, worked on, and people have been campaigning and sort of pushing, saying that the these problems are mainly caused when the issues of capitalism itself, the disparity between the rich and the poor. So there's always the parties and the political platforms which always push and to show that the enemy and the the ones who are taking away your jobs are basically either migrants or either uh, a person from another ethnicity or is it a person from a another region and so on. So I think as long as these things are being played on, there is always this big competition. So as we, as a political party on the left, we are trying to build the class politics. There's always this sentiment. I mean, we have experienced it here in Malaysia itself, whereby we try to bring people together during May Day uh, in a common platform. We are fighting for wages. We're fighting for a decent living uh, standards. Suddenly there will be an issue which is being, uh, there'll be a spanner thrown into the whole works of it. There'll be issue being raised up either in parliament or either by some of these political parties say that look this incident happened between this particular race and this particular person between this particular person and a migrant and the whole narrative changes and all our efforts to bring together the people on a common platform either we're fighting for wages or housing it's completely destroyed so i think this is a continuous process which is happening whereby the progressives and the left are fighting to build class consciousness. But from time to time, there will be political parties who are relying on votes based on if they can get uh, these racial and religious sentiments up. So they are relying their support on this. So they will continually play on this. So we can only find some changes if we do not have uh, parties which are relying or, or based on religious and ethnic lines. As long as there are existence of parties really relying on ethnicity and religious, this this uh, this this fight will continually go on because they will continually sort of stir up many many issues along the way. And in, I think that's why that we always find that these things existing in Malaysia and also in other countries. Sarah, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Siva brought up capitalism. Um, as the root causes of many of this, um, as the root cause of many of these problems. Um, and I think that is, of course, um, core to um, socialist thinking. Um, but I'm wondering, um, how um, do you look at the last four decades of neoliberal capitalism? How has it contributed to the rise of polarization? And how has Australia, from your perspective, sort of um, weathered the neoliberal capitalism's storm in terms of preventing this um, very entrenched polarization. You, you say it, it is on the rise, but again, electorally, it seems like the left in Australia is gaining grounds rather than the right wing. It's, it's such a mixed bag of contradictions because even <laughs> though, yeah, like on one hand, I, you could see it as, well, at least the young are voting progressive. Right. And there's, um, there's this real sense from, um, I guess, a smaller liberal progressive 
left of like, well, we just got to wait for that next generation to age up and vote and then we'll be <laughs> sorted because they're all going to vote left and then it'll all be okay. Right. Meanwhile, we're all just like, you know, <laughs> we want to fix it now. But then at the same time, I mean, yeah, the last the last four decades of neoliberalism, it's like for me it's been a lot of unlearning. Like you've almost got to deprogram your own brain. Like I, I only came into socialist ideas at 22 um and so it was a lot of unlearning of middle class ideas or you know I'm an individual and I'm special and you know <laughs> and all that stuff that just gets put into you at such a, a young age and you you don't have any awareness of it until you're exposed to concepts like solidarity like you, you talk about that word solidarity to people that aren't in a union or on the left and they look at you like They've got no idea what you're talking about. Like it's a total foreign concept um, to a lot of people. And part of that, I guess, goes to some of what Siva was saying before of traditionally there were two organisations that mobilised people, at least in, in Australia, which was the churches and the unions. And the unions aren't mobilising people. That's probably another question. <laughs> like we've had a total collapse of a broader union movement in Australia and the churches or religion ends up being quite divisive on particular issues. So, um, you know, who's taking courage of that mobilisation? Obviously, we try to do that um, as a socialist organisation, but we're, we're quite small in the grand scheme of things as well, yeah. On the show with me today is Sarah Hathaway of the Socialist Alliance Australia and Sivarajan Arugam, SecGen of Party Socialist Malaysia. We continue our conversation after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Sarah Hathaway of the Socialist Alliance Australia and Sivarajan Arumugam, SecGen of Party Socialist Malaysia. And we're talking about the weaknesses and strengths of left-wing and socialist movements in the region and across the globe. So, what has become of the global left? Um, how do you perceive the trajectory, Sarah, of leftist movements um, first I'll get your thoughts on Australia and then um, get Siva's thoughts on Malaysia we can also discussing on a global level but how do you perceive the trajectory of leftist movements in Australia um, over the past four decades and also where do you see it going where do you see your party the unions y'all work with where is it all heading towards look definitely over the last four decades just um that decline right. of unionism in the union movement mm -hmm. um, for a range of factors. We've had a lot of very harsh anti-union legislation that got introduced by the Conservative government when they were in power um, and then a lot of promises from Labor government, vote for us, we'll get rid of it. They come in, they don't get rid of it. Um, Liberals get re-elected, make it worse. And so there's been, you know, three to four decades of that. Um, and very little mobilisation of, um, you know, from union officials of the rank and file, um, or when there is mobilisation, it's very cynical about getting Labor re-elected. So there's no broad um, union campaign outside of a re-elect Labor campaign. Um, and in very recent 
years, their idea of running a campaign is like a social media petition and some memes, and we, we've done a, we've done a national campaign. So um, that that sense of we need to mobilise people on the streets has gone. Um, what we are seeing now, somewhat through climate campaigning, um, but especially through Palestine, has been this huge explosion of rank and file union member organising. I have not seen anything like it since I got involved um, in activism in 2012 um, on any other issue. So we've got WhatsApp groups in every industry, in every union. We've got cross-union meetings happening, interstate meetings happening. We've got rank-and-file members writing petitions, lobbying their officials to put out a position on Gaza. Um, Healthcare workers are having rallies, mums for power. Like, it's just huge. We've probably got hundreds of thousands of people around the country coming out every week for Gaza and they're getting bigger every week. And it's just kind of happened overnight and prior to that. I don't think really our activism um, levels had really recovered from COVID, if I'm being honest, and it was quite different state to state. Um, But yeah, I'd be curious to hear, um, Siva, from yourself, like if you've seen this kind of upsurge in Malaysia directly in response to what's happening in Gaza or is it mobilisation among other issues? Yeah, Siva, I want to get your thoughts on that. Let me add some context, right? Because you are seeing this massive surge of progressive movements in many countries, especially the countries in which the governments are taking a pro-Israel stance. And I think that's very powerful in the sense that the people are coming together for the first time, um, like I say, I'm looking at videos of, of um, whether it's Australia, whether it's UK, whether it's, it's um, Germany, and so on and so forth. Pe- the progr- it's, it feels like a re-energization of the progressive forces coming together, um, protesting against their government. In Malaysia, it's a little different because our government has taken a pro-Palestinian stance from day one. Right? So it's hardly a politically controversial issue here. How do you see what's going on in Gaza um, in terms of reinvigorating the, the left movements, progressive movements, so on and so forth? Um, how does it play out here in Malaysia, Siva? Well, I think in Malaysia, it's a bit different. Uh, I think you correctly pointed out that the movement building and the protests, uh, the wave have been very, very strong especially in the countries where the governments are pro-Israel, they're pro-war and so on. Uh, it was very interesting to see the, I mean, I think it's about like a daily protest which is happening in the US. But unfortunately, even though the in Malaysia, we do not don't see the same momentum, even though people are uh, showing solidarity. I mean, even when we go to the ground, we see most places, people are putting up Palestine flags. Um, there's a huge sale about T-shirts program uh, on solidarity for Palestine, but we really do not see the kind of uh, a movement which is spontaneous coming out from the people themselves. Mm. Uh, what we are seeing is some organized events by the government, and in contrast, Perikata National has put out to say that no, that is not the way we should criticize U.S. And they went on a big protest in front of the U.S. embassy to sort of say that this should have been how the protest should be done. So right. now it's not 
really a, a showing solidarity, but it's more of competition of showing that who can do a better protest. <laughs> so unfortunately, it, it, it seems like that. And we uh, in the Socialist Party, but we have joined some of these uh, protests, but I really don't see any other progressives coming along and organizing separate initiatives like what is happening, like what Sarah said, the unions are not really coming on board. Because I think uh, the, the racial and the divisive politics is so much entrenched in Malaysia. I mean, while when PSM also got involved in some of the solidarity protests for Gaza and Palestine, we also get comments in uh, in our own network and social media say that, uh, so you, you are supporting Palestine now, but did you support Sri Lanka? Did you support this thing, you know? So there's a lot, about, a lot of whataboutism happening. Right. I mean, this is very sad, in fact, because we are talking about a crisis which is happening today. Mm-hmm. And PSM, we have stood for other issues internationally and, and even locally. And when people sort of like make connection to say that why you are not, why you're supporting this particular struggle now, but have you done this for other? So people are still going back along racial lines. And that is something which is very sad. Uh, so I think this is where we have to break and we have to really show that to show support for Palestine should not be on any racial grounds, should not be on ethnic grounds. In fact, it's basically on humanity. So that kind of movement building, I believe it is not really happened yet in Malaysia. And that is what we should really go for. So I think that is what is lacking in the show of support. But I think for the common people, they are seeing the the horror images every day in social media, what is happening there. So I think the common people, there's more a sense of humanity compared to what the uh, the politicians basically uh, unfortunately making use of that issue for their own political mileage. You know, when we look at it um, also on a global level, I'm wondering if, you know, the reason why the left um, has become so weak in, you know, over the past 30 years or so is, I think, Siva, you touched on it, Sarah, also you might have alluded to it, is that, a lot to do in part with how many mainstream, quote-unquote, progressive parties around the world have over the past four decades been technocrats who represent the interests of the professional and managerial class rather than being this vanguard of marginalised communities, um, of, of the lower classes, you know, and, and demanding the expansion of the common good and the redistribution of wealth to the common folk. Uh, I'm wondering how much of this technocratic approach by the so-called progressives, and I'm using air quotes here very specifically, I'm wondering how much of this has damaged the left? How much of the left has become co-opted by essentially neoliberals? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, look, definitely from the Labour Party, um, that what to talk union, talk working class. They're very good at all the sound bites. Um, historically, they came from the union movement. The union right. movement created the Labor Party. But, um, yeah, if you compare politically to where they're at now, to say 40 years ago, it's kind of like the Labor Party is now at where the Liberals were four decades ago when the Liberal, the Conservatives have moved even. So we're just shifting to the right. Um, so enter stage left greens um but even there's yeah there's not a wide spread working class appeal to the Mm -hmm. greens um partly because labor did a very good 
job at a hatchet campaign on the Greens for decades. So they're a bunch of fringe tree-hugging greenies and you can't trust them and, <laughs> you know, they don't support workers and, and that's been internalised by a lot of unionists for a long time. Um, but also sometimes the Greens don't do themselves any favours with policies either um, in terms of who they're trying to appeal to. So, like, one very small example, I think at one point... Um, the Greens were championing something like a fuel tax because fuel's bad and, and climate's good, but then in the cost of living crisis, <laughs> um, you know, didn't really seem to get when those already struggling were, like, outraged um, by that. Um, so, yeah, thing, things like that, they do well to that professional um, university-educated layer, inner-city lefty-type layer, but... Um, yeah, outside of that, they do struggle to get appeal for that reason. Siva, what has the left done wrong in Malaysia? Because at one point, I'm talking about we had strong socialist movements, whether it's democratic socialists, uh, more revolution-minded socialists, and, and so on and so forth. If you look at pre-independence, our left was very, very strong. Um, and over the past you know, um, 60 years or so. Um, the left is virtually non-existent except in small pockets. Um, the mo- only unabashedly leftist party in Malaysia, which is you guys, PSM, um, really struggle to make um, grounds electorally. Um, doing good work on the ground, but when it comes to elections, you know, losing deposits, so on and so forth. What do you think accounts for this? What do you think the progressive-minded people have done wrong? I think it's a combination of few things. I think in Malaysia, we had a fair share of uh, cracking down on the left, uh, progressive. As you know, in the 1940s, there was a huge crackdown, even pre-independence. Right. And also in the 50s and 60s, when there was a rise in the left again through the Barisan Socialists and the Labour Party, that was again cracked down uh, in the 1960s up to the 70s. So the most of the draconian laws uh, were used against them. And even after PSM, uh, we, we began our journey. We also had a fair share of that. If you remember more than 10 years ago in 2011, when nearly half of our central committee were arrested and we were, were, were sort of like charged with very serious offences. And we, we thought at that particular moment, that was the end of PSM actually in 2011. <laughs> but somehow we survived through the campaigns and we, so we are still here. So I think there's the constant demonizing of the left. Although people relate a lot to the policies that the socialists bring forward, but there's always a small fear to say that if you're really outright on the left, you're calling yourself a socialist, you're calling yourself a Marxist, you're calling yourself a, a class warrior, there's always a certain fear that you will be cracked down. But of course, uh, we have persisted as an organization to to uphold that. So that is why I think another thing which has also contributed is that whereby people who support us, who believe in our policies, but they find that they don't want to sort of like join us because they say that, okay, if, if I'm sort of like labeled as a socialist, then there's always this fear in Malaysia that you will one day suffer a crackdown. So right. I'd rather move to a, a bit on the center and be a progressive and try to fight for democratic rights and so on. But uh, most of our friends who were in the progressive side, they felt that, no, don't uh, don't worry, PSM, I'm still a left. 
but I want to make changes through Pakatan Harapan. You know, right. I might get elected, but unfortunately, reforms did not really happen. So I think it's a combination of few things. But I think in Malaysia, we had a fair share of the demonizing, the McCarthyism that has happened, you know, and uh, those things that happened in Indonesia. So until today, we are still suffering that. But that's why I think it's very important for a party to really move with the people on the issues and campaign for the people issues. So at least people see there's a relation and we don't, they don't see us as a party which is dogmatic, only upholding uh, ideology, but a party which is very practical and solving and getting involved in daily issues of the people. I think you bring up a very good point about, you know, the Red Scare propaganda, so to speak, the demonization of socialist parties um, around the world, or sort of framing socialist parties as this very totalitarian, anti-religion party. And, and I think uh, some of that is because of the, the fault of socialist parties themselves around the world, certain um, socialist parties, certain projects that decades ago. But many of it is, a lot of it is also due to, you know, unfair propaganda and, and you know, just scaring and demonizing um, uh, and, you know, making the fear-mongering um, towards the public. So how has the relationship between traditional Marxist ideologies and contemporary leftist movements developed? In other words, what does being a socialist mean in the 21st century? What exactly are y'all trying to achieve? I mean, certainly over the life of um, Socialist Alliance, which is just relatively still a young party, it only sort of established in 2001, um, but we've rapidly been putting ecology um, or eco-socialism politics front and centre of what we're doing um, and really reframing, um, you know, our platform and, and everything we're putting forward through that ecological or eco-socialism lens. Um, and probably the other, the other thing that we have been having some discussions about in the party quite recently, just in terms of how we're relating to, say, the Greens um, or other left groupings in Australia, um, is this tactic of a united front approach. Um, and we had some reflection on this um, earlier in the year where at the moment it seems that that, that tactic of a united front approach has been dropped by every other left organisation. Um, so, so where unions are campaigning, it's my patch, my workplace, my enterprise bargaining agreement. Like that's the, the scope it's got down to. Um, the Greens where our patch is parliament, so it's our electorate, it's that tunnel vision, we want to get to parliament. Um, and then we've got other left or far left groupings where it's like we'll just come in recruit the most radical and we're not interested in like this broad alliance. We don't want to create a mass movement. So then we're out. So I guess among all of that, we're trying to navigate how how can Socialist Alliance in a meaningful way um, contribute to this tactic of United Front? How do we build broader campaigns and sustained movements, not just a flash in the pan campaign and then everyone goes home four weeks later because we're on to the next issue? Um, and I think more broadly as socialists, I think like the biggest role for us is making those political connections for people. Um, 
So, I mean, right now for us in Australia, it, it is Gaza and Palestine because, unfortunately, our government, um, we're actively watching our government support genocide and it's, people are wrapping their heads around that. I mean, in Australia, we all grow up learning about World War II and the Holocaust, like all through high school, that's our history, what we learn about. We don't learn about genocide that happened in our own country. We don't talk about that right. um, with First Nations people. But now we're seeing it on the TV and we're seeing our government um, exposed. Um, so our role now as quickly as possible is to start making these links, anti-war, anti-imperialism, climate, um, in the hopes that this doesn't all fizz out um, in two weeks, a month, or whenever this latest conflict ends. Yeah. I think there's a big shift in the uh, the difference between the 20th century socialist parties compared to the 21st one is that I think the 20th century was mainly uh, a, mostly a party-centric kind of uh, movement whereby the Bolshevik party, the communist parties in each country, they played a big role and they were seen as the vanguard party to lead the whole movement. But I think post-Berlin Wall, what has happened is that even in Malaysia, we found that there's a complete uh, a collapse of the left movement here. Uh, people, the parties which call themselves socialists, they sort of dropped the word socialism after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So there was a complete uh, uh, people who lost confidence in the whole left movement. But I think what has happened after that, the neoliberal attack in most of these countries with Mahathir here locally, it has created a lot of issues among the people. And what has happened is that the working class, even though that was always looked at as the uh, the revolutionary class, a lot of other issues happen uh, around. And that is what we also see in Malaysia. People, the urban poor were being evicted. We found issues with the informal workers as we did not, we, did, we found that how the unions were also broke down with uh, uh, draconian laws and thus we have a huge sector of informal workers we did not really come under the union uh, we had the farmers we had issues about the plantation workers so there's a huge sector of uh, issues that we are facing and here is where i think there's a shift happened is that uh, from a political party centric movement it became a more of a movement people's movement centric kind of a left left mobilization so I think that's the biggest change we found. So whereby the party itself does not become the center of the whole revolution, but the party becomes a catalyst on how it can build a movement around it. And so that is why that you see also that's how PSM moves. We are very close with a lot of civil society organizations. And most of the time we get asked this question, you know, are you a political party or are you an NGO? <laughs> right? <laughs> so people are quite confused. Why are these people not really interested in the electoral process? You know, They're doing people's issues. They're fighting this <laughs> issue. They're getting arrested here. So, so I think that's, this is a new political paradigm that we have to move, move away from. We have to be a part of the whole movement. We cannot be sitting up there as armchair socialists and defining politics to say that this is the right way. This is the right tactical line. We, we cannot be doing that anymore. We have to be grounded. And most of the solutions will come from the people themselves. So I think that's a bigger difference because the 20th century, I think they had their own challenges where there was a lot of attack and they had to really define their political line to see that they don't want to liquidate themselves. They, want to, they looked at the permanent revolution question. They looked at a lot of other questions. So they had to really define themselves to say that 
this is the way to make the revolution. But in today's 21st century, we have different challenges. We have the challenge about climate change and so on. So the party movement, the political line, it's sort of uh, not a key part, but still very important. It, it is our basis. It is our grounding. But how we move, it's more towards the movement building itself, getting involved in people's issues. I think that is what uh, the biggest change I would see. And that, that is also the biggest challenge we have, how we can integrate with the movements and move accordingly. And of course, the downside of this is that when you are so, so in integrated with the people's movement and people see you as part of the whole struggle, it's also a bit difficult to really get a, a sort of like a electoral victory, you know, because they don't, they don't see you as a political party in the traditional sense and someone who sort of like uh, should get elected. So that kind of transition, that kind of understanding uh, has not really happened yet. So this is where PSMs are really stuck. We are un, we are known in the ground level to solve people's issues, but when it comes to electoral politics, they say, "Are you really serious in getting elected?" You know, that kind of question arises. So I think that's the transition that Malaysians will have to go through. You know. And before we wrap this conversation up, Siva, I just want to um, ask about, you know, there's there's going to be an upcoming international conference called Socialism 2023 happening in Kuala Lumpur. It's um, organised by PSM. International guests are going to be um, being part of the conference, include, including Sarah. Um, tell me about the upcoming conference. What is it all about? What can people ex- uh, expect? How can people sign up? This is a conference that uh, PSM, we have been organising since 2005. And this is an international conference. So we have many, many great speakers from throughout the world. Uh, Sarah will be speaking on the, from the Socialist Alliance. Sarah, you're speaking on militarization, right? And yes, I think Australia, as you, as you alluded to earlier, is involved in AUKUS, is involved in the Southeast Asia militarization. So that's a, a key topic. We're also talking about issues about China. And we have another interesting topic, topic about the de-dollarization. Right. whether the dollar is no more prominent in the world economy, the, the growing impact of China. We have a talking topic about uh, feminists and socialism. And a very keynote speech will be given by Professor Prabhat Patnaik. He's a very prominent uh, Marxist economist from India. He's basically going to talk about the transitional program. Now, what do, how can socialists really do a trans- transitional program? And we also have a local topic. We're talking about, is a third force really viable? Is a left third force viable in Malaysia? So we have people from uh, uh, PSM, we have people from MUDA, we have a political analysis, uh, uh, Dr. Bridget is talking about it. And there will be also other topics about climate change. And I think very interesting also, we're going to look at Thailand. Um, This topic is uh, basically to look at how the politics has transformed from the last years, the big, huge protests that happening in the last two years. And we have the the PITA was elected and the changes that happened from there. So there's a huge combination of a lot of topics happening. We really hope that people can attend this event. It's happening on the 2nd and 3rd of December, uh, Saturday and Sunday, at the Kuala Lumpur Slango Chinese Assembly Hall. And uh, you can catch us on social media at Party Socialists. Uh, please sign up. Uh, look at our website. You can have the program there. And uh, of course, it'll be a very interesting conference. And on that note, Sarah, Siva, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
I've been speaking to Sarah Hathaway of the Socialist Alliance Australia and Sivarajan Arumugam, Sekjen of Party Socialist Malaysia. There will be a socialism conference happening next weekend on the 2nd and 3rd of December at the Kuala Lumpur Selangor Chinese Assembly Hall. If you'd like to get tickets for the conference, you can head over to Party Socialist Malaysia's social media pages. There will also be a link in the description section of this podcast. If you'd like to listen to more conversations like this, do check out the podcast on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.